Welcome to Volume 3 of The Mating Season. Chapter 5 Well, I did get there before midnight, of course, but I was dashed late all the same. As might have been expected on a day like this, the two-seater, usually as reliable as an Arab steed, developed some sort of box or sickness halfway through the journey, with the result that the time schedule was shot to pieces, and it was getting on for eight when I turned in the main gates. A quick burst up the drive enabled me to punch the front doorbell at about twenty-two. I remember once when he and I arrived at a country house where the going threatened to be sticky. Jeeves, as we alighted, murmured in my ear the words, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came, sir. At the time I could make nothing of the crack. Subsequent inquiry, however, revealed that this Roland was one of those knights of the Middle Ages who spent their time wandering to and fro, and that catching up one evening at a dump known as the Dark Tower, he had scratched the chin a bit dubiously, not liking the look of things. It was the same with me now. I admired Deverell Hall. I could appreciate that it was a fine old pile with battlements and all the fixings, and that the Deverell who had built it had been with me at the moment, I would have slapped him on the back and said, Nice work, Deverell! But I quailed to the thought of what lay within. Behind that massive front door lurked five ants of early Victorian vintage, and an Esmond Haddock who, when he had got on to the fact that I was proposing to pull a Mary's lab on him, was quite likely to forget the obligations of our host and break my neck. Considerations like these prevent one feasting the eye on Tudor architecture with genuine enjoyment and take from 50 to 60 percent off the entertainment value of spreading lawns and gay flower beds. The door opened revealing some 16 stone of butler. Good evening, sir, said this substantial specimen, Mr. Worcester. Think Nottle, I said hastily to correct his impression. As a matter of fact, it was all I could do to speak at all, for the sudden impact of Charlie Silversmith had removed the breath almost totally. He took me right back to the days when I was starting out as a flaneur and man about town, and used to tremble beneath Butler's eyes and generally feel very young and bulbous. Older now and tougher, I'm able to take most of these fauna in my stride. When they open front doors to me, I shoot my cuffs nonchalantly. Aha, there, butler, I say, how's tricks? But Jesus' Uncle Charlie was something special. He looked like one of those steel engravings of 19th century statesmen. He had a large bald head and pale protruding gooseberry eyes, and those eyes resting on mine heightened the dark tower of feeling considerably. The thought crossed my mind that if something like this had popped out a child Roland, he would have clapped spurs to his charger and been off like a track rabbit. Sam Goldwyn, attached by a stout cord to the windscreen, seemed to be thinking along the same lines, for after one startled glance at Uncle Charlie, he'd thrown his head back and was now uttering a series of agitated howls. I sympathised with his distress. A South London dog belonging to the lower middle classes, or rather, definitely of the people, I don't suppose he had ever seen a butler before, and it was a dashed shame that he should have drawn something like Uncle Charlie first crack out of the box. With an apologetic jerk of the thumb, I directed the latter's attention to him. A dog, I said, this seeming about as good a way as any other of affecting the introductions. And Uncle Charlie gave him an austere look, 
as if he found him using a fish fork for the entree. I will have the animal removed to the stable, sir. He said, coldly, and I said, oh thanks, that would be fine. And now, I said, I'd better be nipping along and dressing. What? I don't want to be late for dinner. Dinner has already commenced, sir. We dine at 7.30, punctually. If you would care to wash your hands, sir. He said, and indicated a door to the left. In the circles in which I move, it is pretty generally recognized that I am a resilient sort of bimbo, and in circumstances where others might crack beneath the strain, may frequently be seen rising on stepping stones of my dead self to higher things. Look in at the drones and ask the first fellow you meet. Can the fine spirit of the Worcesters be crushed, and he will offer you attractive odds against such a contingency? However tough the going, he will say, and however numerous what are called the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, you will find Bertram in there swinging. But I had never before been thrust into the position of having to say I was Gussie Finknottle, and slap on top of that of having to dine in a strange house without dressing. And I don't mind admitting that for an instant everything went black. It was a limp and tottering Bertram Worcester who soaked, rinsed and dried the outlying portions and followed Uncle Charlie to the dining room. And what with the agony of feeling like a tramp cyclist and the embarrassment of having to bolt my rations with everybody, or so it seemed to my inflamed imagination, clicking their tongues and drumming on the table and saying to one another in undertones what a hell of a nuisance this hold-up was because they wanted the next course to appear so they could start digging in and getting theirs. It was not for some time that I was sufficiently restored to be able to glance around the board and take a deco at the personnel. There had been introductions of a sort, of course. I seem to recall Uncle Charlie saying Mr. Finknottle in a reserved sort of voice as if wishing to make it clear it was no good blaming him, but they hadn't really registered. As far as the eye could reach, I found myself gazing at a surging sea of ants. There were tall ants, short ants, stout ants, thin ants, and an ant who was carrying on a conversation in a low voice to which nobody seemed to be paying the slightest attention. I was to learn later that this was Miss Emmeline Deverell's habitual practice, she being the ant of whom Corky had spoken as the dotty one. From start to finish of every meal she soliloquized. Shakespeare would have liked her. At the top of the table was a youngish bloke in a well-cut dinner jacket, which made me more than ever conscious of the travel-stained upholstery in which I had been forced to appear. E. Haddock, presumably. He was sitting next to a girl in white, so obviously the junior member of the bunch, I deduced that here we had Catsmeat's Gertrude. Drinking her in, I could see how Catsmeat had got that way. The daughter of Dame Daphne, relic of the late P.B. Winkworth, was slim, blonde and fragile, in sharp contradistinction to her mother, whom I now identified as the one to my left, a rugged, light heavyweight with a touch of Wallace Beery in her makeup. Her eyes were blue, her teeth pearly, and in other respects she had what it takes. I was quite able to follow Catsmeat's thought processes. According to his own statement, he had walked with this girl in an old garden on twilight evenings, with the birds singing sleepily in the shrubberies and the stars beginning to peep out. And no man of spirit could do that with a girl like this without going under the ether. I was musing on these two young hearts in springtime and speculating with a not unmanly touch of sentiment on their chances of spearing the happy ending when the subject of the concert came up. The conversation at the table up to this point had been pretty technical stuff, 
not easy for the stranger within the gates to get a toehold on. You know the sort of thing I mean? One aunt saying that she had had a letter from Emily by the afternoon post, and another aunt saying had she said anything about Fred and Alice, and the first aunt saying yes, everything was all right about Fred and Alice, because Agnes now had told Edith what Jane had sent to Eleanor. All rather mystic. But now an aunt in spectacles said she had met the vicar that evening and the poor old gook was spitting blood because his niece, Miss Peerbright, insisted on introducing into the programme of the concert what she described as a knockabout crosstalk act by Police Constable Dobbs and Agatha Warpleston's nephew, Mr. Worcester. What a knockabout crosstalk act was, she had no idea. Perhaps you can tell us, Augustus. I was only too glad to have the opportunity of saying a few words, for except for a sort of simpering giggle at the outset, I hadn't uttered anything since joining the party, and I felt it was about time, for Gussie's sake, that I came out of the silence. Carry on along these lines much longer, and the whole gang would be at their desks writing letters to the Bassett, entreating her to think twice before entrusting her happiness to a dumb brick who would probably dish the success of the honeymoon by dashing off in the middle of it to become a Trappist monk. Oh, rather, I said. It's one of those patent-like things. Two birds come on in green beards, on with umbrellas, and one bird says to the other bird, Who was that lady I saw you coming down the street with? And the second bird says to the first bird, Faith and be garb! That was no lady, that was my wife. Then the second bird busts the first bird over their bean with his umbrella, and the first bird, not to be behindhand, busts the second bird over the head with his umbrella. And so the long day wears on. It didn't go well. There was a sharp intake of breath from one and all. Very vulgar, said one aunt. Terribly vulgar, said another. Disgustingly vulgar, said Dame Daphne Winkworth. But how typical of that, Miss Peerbright, to suggest such a performance at a village concert. The rest of the ants didn't say, you betcha, or you've got something there, Daph. But their manner suggested these words. Lips were pursed and noses looked down. I began to get on to what Catsmeat had meant when he had said that these females did not approve of Corky. Her stock was plainly down in the cellar, and the market sluggish. Well, I'm glad, said the aunt in spectacles, that it is this Mr. Worcester and not you, Augustus, who is disgracing himself by taking part in this degrading horseplay. Imagine how Madeline must feel. Madeline? would never get over it, said the thin aunt. Dear Madeline is so spiritual, said Dame Daphne Winkworth. A cold hand seemed to clutch at my heart. I felt like a gardering swine that has come within a toucher of doing a nosedive over the precipice. You'll scarcely believe it, but it had never so much as crossed my mind that Madeline Bassett, on learning that her lover had been going about in a green beard, sucking policemen with umbrellas, would be revolted to the depths of her soul. Dash it! The engagement wouldn't go on functioning for a minute after the news had reached her. You can't be too careful how you stir up these romantic girls with high ideals. A gussie in a green beard would be almost worse than a gussie in the cooler. It gave me a pang to hand in my portfolio, for I had been looking forward to a sensational triumph. But I know when I'm licked, I resolved that bright and early tomorrow morning word must be sent to Corky that Bertram was out and that she must enlist the services of another artist with a roll of pat. From all I've heard of this Mr. Worcester, said an aunt with a beaky nose, continuing the theme, 
This kind of vulgar tomfoolery would be quite congenial to him. By the way, where is this Worcester? Yes. Chimed in and out with spectacles. He was to have arrived this afternoon and he has not even sent a telegram. He must be a most erratic young man. Said a third aunt, who would have been the better for a good facial. Dame Daphne took command of the conversation like a headmistress at a conference of her subordinates. Erratic, she said, is a kindly term. He appears to be completely irresponsible. Agatha tells me that sometimes she despairs of him. She says she often wonders if the best thing would not be to put him in a home of some kind. You may picture the emotions of Bertram on learning that his flesh and blood was in the habit of roasting the pants off him in that manner. One doesn't demand much in the way of gratitude, of course, but when you have gone to the expense and inconvenience of taking an aunt's son to the old Vic, you are justified, I think, in expecting her to behave like an aunt who has had her son taken to the old Vic, in expecting her, in other words, to exhibit a little decent feeling in a modicum of the live and let live spirit. How sharper than a serpent's tooth, I remember Jeeves saying once, it is to have a thankless child, and it isn't a dash inside better having a thankless aunt. I flushed darkly and would have drained my glass if it had contained anything restorative, but it didn't. Champagne of a sound vintage was flowing like water elsewhere, Uncle Charlie getting a stiff wrist pouring the stuff, but I, in deference to Gussie's known tastes, had been served with that obscene beverage which is produced by putting half an orange on a squeezer and pushing. There seems, proceeded Dame Daphne in that cold, disapproving voice, which in the old days she would have employed when rebuking Maud or Beatrice for smoking gaspers in the shrubbery. To be no end to his escapades. It is not so long ago he was arrested and fined for stealing a policeman's helmet in Piccadilly. I could put her straight there and did so. That, I explained, was due to an unfortunate oversight. In pinching a policeman's helmet, as of course I don't need to tell you, it is essential before lifting to give a forward shove in order to detach the strap from the officer's chin. This Worcester omitted to do so, with the results you have described, but I think you ought to take into consideration the fact that the incident occurred pretty late on boat race night, when the best of men are not quite themselves. Still, be that as it may, I said, quickly sensing I had not got the sympathy of the audience and adroitly changing the subject. I wonder if you know the one about the striptease dancer and the performing flea. Or rather, no, not that one, I said, remembering that it was a conte scarcely designed for the gentlest sex in the tots. The one about the two men in the train. It's old, of course, so stop me if you've heard it before. Pray, go on, Augustus. It's about these two deaf men in the train. My sister Charlotte has the misfortune of being deaf. It is a great affliction. The thin aunt bent forward. What's he saying? Augustus is telling us a story, Charlotte. Please go on, Augustus. Well, of course, this had damped the fire a bit. For the last thing one desires is to be supposed to be giving a maiden lady the horse's laugh on account of her physical infirmities. But it was too late now to take a bow and get off, so I had to go on with it. But well, there were these two deaf chaps in the train, don't you know, and it stopped at Wembley, and one of them looked out the window and said, This is Wembley, and the other said, I thought it was Thursday, and the first chap said, Yes, so am I. 
I hadn't had much hope. Right from the start, something had seemed to whisper in my ear that I was about to lay an egg. I laughed heartily to myself, but I was the only one. At the point where the ants should have rolled out of their seats like one ant, there occurred merely a rather ghastly silence, as of mourners at a deathbed, which was broken by Aunt Charlotte asking what I had said. I would have been just as pleased to let the whole thing drop, but the stout aunt spoke into her ear, spacing her syllables carefully. Augustus was telling us a story about two men in a train. One of them said, Today is Wednesday, and the other said, I thought it was Thursday, and the first man said, Yes, so did I. Oh, said Aunt Charlotte, and I suppose that about summed it up. Shortly after this, the browsing and sluicing being concluded, the females rose and filed from the room. Dame Daphne told Esmond Haddock not to be too long over his port and popped off. Uncle Charlie brought the decanter and also popped off, and Esmond Haddock and I were alone together, self-wondering how chances were for getting a couple of glassfuls. I moved to his end of the table, licking the lips. Chapter 6 Esmond Haddock, seen close to, fully bore out Catsmeat's description of him as a Greek god, and I could well understand the concern of a young lover who saw his girl in danger of being steered into rose gardens by one such as him. He was a fine, upstanding, well, sitting at the moment, of course, but you know what I mean, broad-shouldered bozo of about thirty, with one of those faces which I believe, though I should have to check up with Jeeves, are known as Byronic. He looked like a combination of a poet and an all-in wrestler. It would not have surprised you to learn that Hesmond Haddock was the author of sonnet sequences of a fruity and emotional nature, which made him the toast of Bloomsbury, for his air was that of a man who could rhyme love and dove as well as the next chap. Nor would you have been astonished if informed he had recently felled an ox with a single blow. You would have simply felt what an ass the ox must have been to get into an argument with a fellow with a chest like that. What was extraordinary was that this superman was in the habit, as testified to by the witness Corky, of crawling to his ants. But for Corky's evidence, I would have said, looking at him, that there sat a nephew capable of facing the toughest aunt and making her say uncle. Not that you can ever tell, of course, by the outward appearance. Many a fellow who looks like the dominant male and has himself photographed smoking a pipe curls up like carbon paper when confronted with one of these relatives. He helped himself to a port, and there was a momentary silence, as so often occurs when two strong men who have not been formally introduced sit face to face. He worked painstakingly through his snootful, while I continued to fix my bulging eyes on the decanter. It was one of those outsized decanters, full to the brim. He swigged away for some little while before opening the conversation. His manner was absent, and I got the impression that he was thinking deeply. Presently he spoke. I say. He said in an odd puzzled voice. That story of yours. Yes. About the feathers on the train. Yes. I was a bit distraught when you were telling it, and I think I may possibly have missed the point. As I got it, there were two men on a train, and it stopped at a station. That's right. And one of them said, this is walking, and the other said, I'm thirsty. Was that how it went? 
Not quite. It was Wembley the train stopped at, and the fellow said he thought it was Thursday. Was it Thursday? No, no. These chaps were deaf, you see. So when the first chap said, this is walking, the other chap, the other chap thinking he had said Wednesday, and said, so am I. I mean, oh. I see. Yes, most amusing. Said Esmond Haddock. He refilled his glass, and I think that as he did so, he must have noticed the tense set expression on my face, rather like that of a starving wolf, giving a Russian peasant the once over. For he started, as if realizing that he had been remiss. I say, I suppose it's no good offering you any of this. I felt the table talk could not have taken a more satisfactory turn. Well, do you know, I said, I wouldn't mind trying it. It would be an experience. It's whiskey or claret or something, isn't it? Port. You may not like it, though. Oh, I think I shall. And a moment later I was in a position to state that I did. It was a very fine old port, full of buck and body, and though my better self told me that it should be sipped, I lowered a beakerful to gulp. It's good, I said. It's supposed to be rather special. More? Thanks. I'll have another myself, he said. One needs a bit of bracing these days, I find. Do you know the expression, these are the times that try men's souls? No to me, your own? No, I heard it somewhere. Very neat. It is, rather. Another? Thank you. I'll join you. Shall I tell you something? Please do. I inclined the ear invitingly. Three goblets of the right stuff had left me with a very warm affection for this man. I couldn't remember when I had liked a fellow more at first meeting, and if he wanted to tell me his troubles, I was prepared to listen as attentively as any barman to an old and valued customer. The reason I mentioned the times that try men's souls is that I am right up against those identical times at this very moment. My soul is on the rack. More port. Thanks. I find this stuff rather grows on you. Why is your soul on the rack, Esmond? You don't mind me calling you Esmond? I prefer it. I'll call you Gussie. This, of course, came as a rather unpleasant shock. Gussie being, to my mind, about the ultimate low in names. But I quickly saw that in the role I'd undertaken, I must be prepared to accept the rough with the smooth. We drained our glasses, and Esmond Haddock refilled them. A princely host, he struck me as. Esmond, I said, you struck me as a princely host. Thank you, Gussie. He replied. And you're a princely guest. But you're asking me why my soul is on the rack. I'll tell you, Gussie. I must begin by saying that I like your face. I said I liked his. It's an honest face. I said his was too. A glance at it tells me that you're trustworthy. By that I mean I can trust you. Quite. If I couldn't, I wouldn't. If you follow what I mean... Because what I'm about to tell you must go no further, Gussie. Not an inch, Esmond. Well then, the reason my soul is on the rack is that I love a girl with every fibre of my being, and she has given me the brush off. Enough to put anyone's soul on the rack, what? I should say so. Her name? 
But naturally, I can't mention names. Of course not. It's not cricket. Not at all. So I will merely say that her name is Cora Peerbright. Corky to her pals. You don't know her, of course. I remember when I told her you were coming here, she said she had heard from mutual friends that you were a freak of the first water and practically dotty. But she had never met you. But she is probably familiar to you on the screen. The name she goes by professionally is Cora Star. You've seen her? Oh, rather! An angel in human shape. Didn't you think? Oh, definitely! That was my view too, Gussie. I was in love with her long before I met her. I had frequently seen her pictures in Bassingstoke, and when old Peerbright the vicar here mentioned that his niece was coming to keep house for him, and that she was just back from Hollywood, I said, Oh, really, who is she? And he said, Cora Star. You could have knocked me down with a feather, Gussie. I bet I could have, Esmond. Proceed, you're interesting me strangely. Well, she arrived. Old Peerbright introduced us. Our eyes met. They would, of course. And it wasn't more than about two days after that that we talked it over and agreed we were twin souls. And then she gave you the brusheroo. And then she gave me the brusheroo. Mark this, Gussie. Even though she has given me the brusheroo, she is still the lodestar of my life. More port? Thank you. My aunt's Gussie will try to kid you that I love my cousin Gertrude. Don't believe a word of it. I'll tell you how that mistake arose. Shortly after Corky handed me my papers, I went to the pictures in Bassingstoke, and in the thing they were showing, there was a fellow who had been turned down by a girl. And in order to make her think a bit and change her mind, he started surging around with another girl. To make her jealous? Exactly. I thought it was a clever idea. Very clever. And it occurred to me that if I started surging round Gertrude, it might make Corky change her mind. So I surged. I see. A bit risky, wasn't it? Risky? Suppose you overdid it and got too fascinating. Broke her heart, I mean. Corky's heart? No, your cousin Gertrude's heart. Oh, that's all right. She's in love with Corky's brother. No chance of breaking Gertrude's heart. We might drink to the success of my scheme. Don't you think, Gussie? An excellent idea, Esmond. I was, as you may imagine, profoundly bucked. What this meant was that the dark menace of Esmond Haddock had passed from Catsmeat's life. No more need for him to worry about the Rose Garden. You could unleash Esmond Haddock in the Rose Garden with Gertrude Winkworth by the hour, and no business would result. I raised my glass and emptied it to Catsmeat's happiness. Whether or not a tear stone in my eye, I can't say. But I should think it very probable. It was a pity, of course, that being supposed never to have met Corky, I couldn't electrify Esmond Haddock and bring the sunshine breezing back into his life by telling him what she had told me, viz, that she loved him still. All I could do was to urge him not to lose hope. And he said he hadn't lost hope, not by a jugful. And I'll tell you why I haven't lost hope, Gussie. The other day a very significant thing happened. She came to me and asked me to sing a song at this ghastly concert she's getting up. Well, of course it wasn't a thing I would have gone out of my way to do, had the circumstances been different. 
I've never sung at a village concert. Have you? Oh, rather. Often. A terrible ordeal, was it not? Oh, no, I enjoyed it. I don't say it was all jam for the audience, but a good time was had by me. You feel nervous at the prospect, do you, Esmond? There are moments, Gussie, when the thought of what is before me makes me break into cold perspiration. But then I say to myself that I'm the young squire and pretty popular around these parts, so I'll probably get by all right. That's the attitude. But you're wondering why I said it was significant that she should come to me and ask me to sing a song at this foul concert. I'll tell you, I take it as definite evidence that the old affection still lingers. Well, I mean, if it didn't, would she come asking me to sing at concerts? I am banking everything on that song, Gussie. Corky is an emotional girl, and when she hears that audience cheering me to the echo, it will do something to her. She will melt. She will relent. I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't say, Oh, Esmond, and fling herself into my arms. Always provided, of course, that I don't get the bird. You won't get the bird. You think not? Not a chance. You'll go like a breeze. You're a great comfort, Gussie. I try to be Esmond. What are you going to sing? The Yeoman's Wedding Song? No, it's a thing written by my Aunt Charlotte, with music by my Aunt Myrtle. I pursed my lips. This did not sound too good. Nothing that I had seen of Aunt Charlotte had led me to suppose that the divine fire lurked within her. One didn't want to condemn her, unheard of course, but I was prepared to bet that anything proceeding from her pen would be well on the lousy side. I say, said Esmond Haddock, struck by an idea. Would you mind if I just ran through it for you now? Nothing I'd like better. Except perhaps another spot of port. Except that, perhaps. Thanks. Esmond drained his glass. I won't sing the verse. It's just a lot of guff about the sun is high up in the sky and the morn is bright and fair and so forth. Quite. The chorus is what brings home the bacon. It goes like this. He assumed the grave, intent expression of a stuffed frog and let rip. Hello, 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 hello. I raised a hand. Just a second. What are you supposed to be doing? Telephoning? No, it's a hunting song. Oh, a hunting song, I see. I thought it might be one of those I'm going to telephone my baby things. Righto. He resumed. Hello, 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 hello. Hunting we will go, pom pom. Hunting we will go, Gussie. I raised a hand again. I don't like it. What? The pom-pom. Oh, that's just in the accompaniment. I don't like that, Gussie. It lets the side down. Did I say Gussie? Yes, you said a hunting we will go, pom-pom, a hunting we will go, Gussie. Oh, just a slip of the tongue. It isn't in the script. No, it isn't in the script. I'd leave it out on the night. I will. Shall I continue? Do. Where was I? Better start at the beginning again. Right. Another drop of port? Just a trickle, perhaps. Well then, starting again at the beginning and omitting, as before, all the sun is high up in the sky stuff. Hello, 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 hello. Hunting we will go, pom pom, hunting we will go. Today's the day, so come what may, hunting we will go. I began to see that I had been right about Charlotte. This wouldn't do at all. Young squire or no young squire, a songster singing this sort of thing at a village concert 
was merely asking for the raspberry. All wrong, I said. All wrong? Well, think it out yourself. You start off, a hunting we will go, a hunting we will go. And then just as the audience is all keyed up for a punchline, you repeat that a hunting we will go. There will be a sense of disappointment. You think so, Gussie? I'm sure of it, Esmond. Then what would you advise? I pondered a moment. Try this, I said. Hello, 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 hello. A hunting we will go, my lads. A hunting we will go. Pull up your socks and chase the fox and lay the blighter low. I say, that's good. Stronger, I think. Much stronger. Where's the girl from there? He switched on the stuffed frog expression once more. Oh, hark and merry horn, over brake and over thorn. Upon this jolly hunting morn, a hunting we will go. I waved this. I passed the first two lines, I said. Merry horn, break and thorn. Not bad at all. And a girl, Charlotte. We always knew you had it in you, but not the finish. You don't like it? Weak. Very weak. I don't know what sort of standees you get at King Deverell's, but if they're like the unshaven thugs behind the back row at every village concert I've ever known, you're simply inviting them to make noises like tearing calico. No. We must do better than that. Born corn, pawn, torn. Ha! I said, reaching out for the decanter. I think I have it. Oh, hearken to the merry horn of a breaking over thorn. We'll ride although our bags get torn. What ho, what ho, what ho! I had more or less expected it to knock him cold than it did. For an instant he was speechless with admiration. Then he said it lifted the whole thing and he couldn't thank me enough. It's terrific. I was hoping you'd like it. How do you think of these things? How they just come to me? We might run through the authorised version, old man, shall we? No time like the present, dear old chap. It's curious how, looking back, you can nearly always spot where you've gone wrong in any binge or enterprise. Take this little slab of community singing of ours, for instance. In order to give the thing zip, I stood on my chair and waved the decanter like a baton. And this, I see now, was a mistake. It helped the composition enormously, but it tended to create false impression in the mind of the observer, conjuring up the picture of drunken revels. And if you're going to say that on the present occasion there was no observer, I quietly reply that you're wrong. We had just worked through the break and thorn, and were going all out for the rousing finish when a voice spoke behind us. It said, Well... There are, of course, many ways of saying well. The speaker, who had the floor at the moment, Dame Daphne Winkworth, said it rather in the manner of the prudish queen of a monarch of Babylon, who has just happened to wander into the banqueting hall, just as the Babylonian orgy is beginning to go nicely. Well, she repeated. Of course, what Corky had told me about Esmond Haddock's ad fixation ought to have prepared me for it, but I must say I was shocked at his deportment at this juncture. It was the deportment of a craven and a worm. Possibly stimulated by my getting on the chair, he had climbed onto the table and was using a banana as a hunting crop. He now came down like an apologetic sack of coals, his whole demeanour so crushed and cringing that I hardly could bear to look at him. It's all right, Aunt Daphne. All right. We were rehearsing for the concert, you know. With the concert so near, one doesn't want to lose a minute. No. Oh, well, we are expecting you in the drawing room. 
Yes, Aunt Daphne. Gertrude is waiting to play backgammon with you. Yes, Aunt Daphne. If you feel capable of playing backgammon. Oh, yes, Aunt Daphne. He slunk from the room with a bowed head, and I was about to follow when the old geezer checked me with an imperious gesture. One noted a marked increase in the resemblance to Wallace Beery, and the thought crossed my mind that life for the unfortunate puppets who had drawn this Winkworth as a headmistress must have been like six weeks on Sunny Devil's Island. Previous to making her acquaintance, I had always supposed the Reverend Aubrey Upjohn to be the nearest thing to the late Captain Bly of the bounty which the scholastic world had provided to date. But I could see now that compared with old battling Daphne, he was a mere prelim boy. Augustus, did you bring a great rough dog with you this evening? She demanded. It shows how the Russian swirl of events at Deverell Hall had affected me when I say that for an instant nothing stirred. Dog? Silversmith says it belongs to you. Oh, yes, I said, memory returning to its throne. Yes, yes, of course. Yes, to be sure. You mean Sam Goldwyn. But he's not mine. He belongs to Corky. To whom? Corky Beerbright. She asked me to put him up for a day or two. The mention of Corky's name, as had happened at the dinner table, caused her to draw in her breath and do a quick take him up There was no getting away from the fact that the girl's popularity at Deverell Hall was but slight. Is Miss Peerbright a great friend of yours? Oh, rather, I said, remembering too late that this scarcely squared with what Corky had told Esmond Haddock. I was glad he was no longer with us. She was a trifle dubious about springing the animal on her uncle without a certain amount of preliminary spade work, he being apparently not very dog-minded. So she turned it over to me. It's in the stables. It is not in the stables. Then Silversmith was pulling my leg. He said he would have it taken there. He did have it taken there, but it broke loose and came rushing into the drawing room just now like a mad thing. I saw that here was where the soothing word was required. Sam Goldwyn isn't dotty, I assured her. I wouldn't say he was one of our great minds, but he's perfectly composed. In regard, his rushing into the drawing room, that was because he thought I was there. He has conceived a burning passion for me, and counts every minute lost when he is not in my society. No doubt his first act on being tied up in the stables was to start gnawing through the rope in order to be free to come and look for me. Rather touching, actually. Her manner suggested that she did not think it was in the least touching. Her eye was alight with anti-Sam sentiment. Well, it was most unpleasant. We had left the French windows open as the night was so warm, and suddenly this disgusting brute came galloping in. My sister Charlotte received a nervous shock from which it will take her a long time to recover. The animal leaped upon her back and chased her all over the room. I did not give the thought utterance, for if there is one thing the Worcesters are, it's tactful. But it did occur to me that this had come more or less as a judgment on Charlotte for writing all that hello, 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 a hunting we will go stuff and would be a lesson to her next time she took pen in hand. She was now in a position to see the thing from the fox's point of view. And when we rang for Silversmith, the creature bit him. I must confess to feeling a thrill of admiration as I heard these words. You're a better man than I am, Gunga Din. I came within a toucher of saying. I wouldn't have bitten Silversmith myself to please a dying grandmother, though. I'm frightfully sorry, I said. Is there anything I can do? 
No, thank you. I have considerable influence with this hound. I might be able to induce him to call it a day and go back to the stables and get his eight hours. That will not be necessary. Silversmith succeeded in overpowering the animal and locked him in a cupboard. Now that you tell me its home is at the vicarage, I will send it there at once. I'll take him, shall I? Pray do not trouble. I think it would be better if you were to go straight to bed. This seemed to me the most admirable suggestion. From the moment when the females had legged it from the dinner table, I had been musing somewhat apprehensively on the quiet home evening which would set in as soon as Esmond and I were through with the port. You know what these quiet home evenings are like at country houses, where the personnel of the ensemble is mainly feminine. You get backed into corners and shown photograph albums. Folk songs are sung at you. You find the head drooping like a lily on its stem, and have to keep jerking it back into position one with an effort that taxes the frail strength of the utmost. Far, far better to retire to my sleeping quarters now, especially as I was most anxious to get in touch with Jeeves, who long ere this must have arrived by train with the heavy luggage. I am not saying that this woman's words with their underlying suggestion that I was fried to the tonsils had not wounded me. It was all too plainly her opinion that, if let loose in drawing rooms, I would immediately proceed to create an atmosphere reminiscent of a waterfront saloon when the fleet is in. But the Worcesters are essentially fair-minded, and I did not blame her for holding these views. I could see that when you come into a dining room and find a guest leaping about on a chair with a decanter in his hand, singing, Hello, 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 a-hunting we will go, my lads, a-hunting we will go, you are pretty well bound to fall into a certain train of thought. I do feel a little fatigued after my journey, I said. Silversmith will show you to your room, she replied and I perceived that Uncle Charlie was in our midst. I had not heard or seen him arrive. Like Jeeves, he had manifested himself sadly out of the void. No doubt these things run in families. Silversmith. Yes, madam. Show Mr. Finknottle to his room. Said Dame Daphne, though I could see that she was feeling that help would have been more than mot just. Very good, madam. I noticed that the man was limping slightly seeming to suggest that Sam Goldwyn had connected with his calf, but I forbore to probe and question, realising that the subject, like the calf, might be a sore one. I followed him up the stairs to a well-appointed chamber and wished him a cheery good night. Oh, Silversmith, I said. Sir. Has my man arrived? Yes, sir. You might send him along. Very good, sir. He withdrew, and a few moments later there entered a familiar form. But it wasn't the familiar form of Jeeves. It was the familiar form of Claude Catamole Purebright. <laughs>